I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, this is Lainey. Hey, it's Jenna. Welcome to Show Your Work, our podcast about work, our passion for work. It is the week of the Oscars. It is the week of the Oscars. Uh, by the end of this week, we will be there in L.A. at the Oscars. Maybe. Do you know why I say maybe? Oh, I know. You Go on. Well, um, there is, you know, a travel situation, some difficulty with some people coming in and out of countries. Oh, sure, sure, sure. There's all that. That's fine, the, the travel issue. I'm talking about they may have to relocate the Oscars to Idaho because of all the storms and the rain. Oh, I didn't know that. I, don't I know. was thinking about the travel ban and no, all that. There's that. But, uh, you know, there is – L.A. is experiencing some desperate flash floods right now. People are canceling things left and right uh, because of this epic, epic rain they need it, though. They need it desperately. And in truth, uh, the problem is, of course, that because of the way a lot of things are built there into hills, uh, there can be roads wash out, right? And and the ground can wash out from underneath houses. Uh, so if it's the Oscars live from Kansas City, you'll know why. There's a weird thing that I've seen happen at the Oscars, though. And it's hard not to believe in stardust when you see these things happen. And we've been there how many years now? where it has been pouring, 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 and then basically five minutes to when the first limo pulls up, the skies open up, the rays of sunshine come through, and all of a sudden, that la-la land dream is upon us. Isn't it weird? I guess so, but I maybe I'm just not as afraid of rain as I should be. I remember, here's a real digression, I remember everybody being all dancing around, and don't worry, Duana, it'll be fine, because it was raining on the morning of my wedding. I was not worried for some reason, partly because the skies opened up and sun beamed down yeah. and it was gorgeous and fine. Something always happens around the Oscars where, again, there's just this divine Hollywood presence. Maybe it's me is what we're getting at. <laughs> Maybe it is you. I don't know. I hope I didn't just jinx it. But I feel like, yeah, the tent's going to be up. So I feel, though, maybe we're not quite at Oscars yet because there's still a lot of Grammy hangover. This week. True? False? I would say all week it was people still talking about Grammys, the Adele, Beyonce situation. It's, but it's also kind of award season vibe, right? We're just vibing off of like every week there's an award show. Every week there's like a, a, a big occasion. And it just so happened, yeah, we're coming off the week of the big occasion being the Grammys and two of probably the biggest female superstars of all time. We can say that. I think that at the end of Adele and Beyonce's careers, they're going to be known as all-timers. Oh, sure. So, yes, those With two women. With an asterisk, women, but yes. <laughs> um, those two women took center stage. And yeah, we are still talking about it. And we haven't yet, we've talked about Beyonce on Show Your Work. We haven't talked about Adele on Show Your Work. 
I was thinking about had the situation not gone down, had the Adele outpouring not been what it turned out to be, what would we have been talking about? I don't know what the big story out of the Grammys would otherwise have been. You know, Solange's dresses? I don't know. Uh, But there was kind of only one story or several angles on the one story, right? Right. Pivoting around those two people. Right. So when we talk about Adele and Beyonce being career all-timers, one of the things that has been following Adele, certainly since, so we, I should say, broke our necks to get tickets for Adele's show in Toronto. Oh, God. The, like, the, <laughs> the stress we all, I think it was six of us, went through yeah. to get these tickets. We, gymnastics and paying, and in the end, uh, three of us sat separately. We got three single tickets. That's right. And sat, sat separately, which was fine. If you get the chance, get a single ticket, go see Adele. Except that you won't, because she said all the way through the tour and all the way through the Grammys... Adele kind of made no bones about the fact that she's done, possibly for a long time. Right. Like 10 years. Yeah, at least, right? Uh, One of the things that she said at the end of a rather inflammatory uh, press uh, interview after she won Album of the Year was, you know, fingers crossed you never have to see me here again. Uh, And judging by the fact that she broke a Grammy in half... Uh, maybe she won't be invited again. Uh, but it's, there's a real interesting irreverence to Adele with regard to her recording career. Would you agree? Yeah. I mean, she definitely doesn't take it outwardly as seriously in terms of that commitment to it outwardly that we hear from so many other artists who are like, I gave my life. It is the most important thing to me. I live for this. It's part of my soul. And Adele, of course, said, uh, the most important thing to me after my child is Beyonce. Uh, (laughs) Not her own career, but Beyonce. She's the artist of my life, I believe, is is the quote. And then in the same breath, talked about how all these songwriters and producers basically had to drag her out of bed to make 25, that she was not that interested in making this album, that one album of the year. There's so many things to unpack here. One of those things, let's go back to what you were talking about, about her making no bones about the fact that she's not going to be back for a long time, about the fact that, hey, I'm just basically getting this over with so I can fuck off and you won't see me again. At the height of her career, you know what I mean? Like, it is not, we don't see it very often when people exit at the top. We see people exiting when they're already on their way down, but you can't really climb higher than Adele. And she's like, yeah, peace out. You okay, know? well, that's an interesting statement, what you just said. You can't really climb higher than Adele. What does that mean? As in, there's no greater award to win than Album of the Year, maybe. Uh, but who says you can't top yourself and top yourself? No, I think that, look, there are artists who will top themselves and definitely certainly have that potential. But in terms of who she is peered with right now, in terms of who is on that same level, no one else, well, with the exception of one person, has climbed a mountain or has built a mountain that has higher, is higher than Adele's. If you consider all the typical conventional benchmarks, right? Nobody sells in the numbers that Adele sells at anymore. 
we have seen how digital has changed music, how people don't buy albums anymore. They buy singles. Adele is a person who sells albums. You buy not just one song, you buy all of her songs at once through the album and in staggering numbers. I think that uh, 21 was something like 30 million. 30 million. Those are not numbers we see in this millennium. Is that what we call the millennium? We don't see these numbers anymore. And in particular, she does it old school. So she does it in the conventional, traditional recording way of working with in the studio and then packaging the album with the studio and then releasing it in, you know, the typical studio way, as opposed to, hey, surprise album drop, digital only, go. Or title stream only for two weeks, go. Right. In a real sort of boiled down sense of things, this is an album that you can go and buy physically in a record store if those still exist where you live and give it to your mom. You can order a physical disc on That's right. Amazon and wrap it up and give it to your Aunt Mary who you have That's for right. Secret Santa. Very few artists do that now like, or can few. do it. And it, hilariously, you know who the other two are or there are very few and two of them are, well, one's Adele. The other two are Michael Buble and Susan Boyle. Huh. Very interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, and… You can probably do a through line of the kinds of music that is, right? Ballady. Well, once upon a time, we would have called it adult contemporary. And that's not a disparaging remark, but yeah. that's what that would have been. If adults buy, uh, <laughs> I, can't, I can't look at us and refer to us as adults, but, uh, you know, I don't know how many albums the average person is supposed to buy in a year. But the logic says if they buy two or three, they will be an Adele album and a Michael Bublé. Yeah. Or a Susan Boyle. That's right. And a, what a, this is why American Idol has been such a successful model, right? Or The Voice. Because if people are going to buy one album, they might buy that album from Bo Bice. I don't know. <laughs> and that's what I mean about Adele and the Mountain and the Pinnacle is that she is, in a sense, even Taylor Swift doesn't move Adele numbers. Taylor Swift moves a lot of albums, like don't get me wrong, but 30 million. And Taylor Swift does tour numbers, right? Like that's a big thing for her? Look, she's her album sales are big. I mean, I think that 1989 exceeded a million in its first week and that is big. But over time, again, we talk about 21, um, it is 21, Taylor Swift did not come close to those numbers. Um, so there's that aspect of Adele sort of exiting in this time where she is quite, in a way, singular, if you consider that benchmark. And then there's also what you're saying about that attitude, or at least that part of the persona, where Adele, we, you know, find her amusing and we love her so much because she doesn't seem to give that much of a shit or she sells it to us that way. So the first thing that we talked about, because you and I have been sort of puzzling through this all week, right? The first thing that we talked about is Adele leaving while she's on top maybe indicates that she thinks she can't top that again. What if you're Adele and you've just had the monologue that you just gave about the way that she's sort of single-handedly saving the old school record industry and she doesn't do it again. What if the album called 29 or whatever it is, the, the gaps between Adele's ages and albums are starting to confuse me, uh, 
doesn't do as well? What if it doesn't evolve into the same narrative? That might be scary. That might be a reason to say, no, I'm not playing anymore. That might be a reason to tap out and not get back to it until she were, not get back to it until she was 40 or something. And there's a different narrative to play. She's 28. She's 28. She's 28. Selling an album called 25, (laughs) which is a follow-up to 21. She's 28. It is like, I mean, she's to retire or pause at 28 when you are the king is, you know, like I said, I don't know that a lot of people could walk. But at the same time, you laid out one possibility What if the other possibility is deep, deep savvy? It's, let me just tell people, you know, hey, miss me because you're not going to get much of me. And it feeds into that the next time in three years, if Adele puts out a new album, we are just that hungry for it because we believed all this time, oh, we weren't going to get Adele for another decade or it was going to be so hard to access her. Oh my God, she's back. (gasps) The anticipation, the missing her, the whatever. I mean, that is strategic too. Is that part of the work? I don't know. Maybe. And that's, you know, call it a comeback, so to speak, you know, and whether or not, I guess the question is, is it strategic? Sure. Is it intentional? Who knows? Is Adele as able as she thinks she is to walk away and not be in this world and not sort of be, there's there's this narrative about her, as about many stars, that she's so shy, right? That she's actually quite, uh, that she's actually quite shy in her own life. If you've seen her (laughs) in concert, at the show that we were at, she called up onto the stage uh, a couple two young men, one of whom was wearing a baby in like a, in like a snuggly, like an ergo. Uh, and she proceeded to chat with the men, sign the baby's earphones, like tell the baby <laughs> you're never going to get this at another concert. Like she had a whole monologue worked out. Somebody who is that comfortable with people, somebody who said, if you don't like chat, this is the wrong show to be at. I don't buy that she truly doesn't get something from interacting with people that way, that she will not miss that aspect of the feedback, the the, feedback, the back and forth. Yeah. Yeah. The being in the world with people. I truly believe that she likes to perform for people, that it does something for her. Uh, But I'm not sure I buy that she'll be able to walk away. Yeah. I, I think that that, I think we've muddied, maybe we have been the ones who have muddied that um, stage fright aspect. It was legitimate stage fright. She had performance anxiety for a long time and has now completely, or it looks like, has completely gotten over it. She does suffer from nerves. But I think, I wonder if we've muddied that and interpreted that to mean that she's uncomfortable around people um, and that she's awkward and not self-assured. It's, as you said, hard to buy because when she's in that arena and there are thousands upon thousands and thousands of people who are there weeping with her, who sit alone without their friends in their single seats and don't feel any way at all about it because all it matters, all that matters is that Adele is talking to you and singing directly to you. You and I took the single seats. Mm-hmm. We were two of the three people who took the single and 
didn't matter. In fact, I didn't miss you at all. (laughs) Because I had Adele. She made me feel like I didn't need to be with anybody else. I will say there were people behind me who were worried that I didn't have any friends because I was sort of (laughs) dancing and singing my heart out all by myself and they were worried about me. Yes. And that is a gift too, right? It is a gift for a performer to make you feel not lonely among thousands upon thousands of strangers. But I still take a little bit of issue with some of the narrative because some of the narrative that we heard, especially at the Grammys, oh, you know, they all had to drag me to do this and I didn't really want to. And oh, we just, you know, if it hadn't been for everybody, I wouldn't have made this album. That really speaks to somebody who says, as you've said, you know, doesn't care that much about the work, is not trying that hard. However, we got the big indication on Grammy night that that's not entirely true. No, because this is also an artist who was like, wait, I care so much about my work, especially in this tribute to George Michael, that I will stop the orchestra, shut it down on a live broadcast, a live broadcast. (laughs) Um, This was not live to tape. It was a live broadcast to say, I need to go again. That's huge. And it's huge on a couple of levels. Uh, Number one, because yeah, obviously you care. If you are willing to do that, to look like that, to inconvenience people. And I want to come back to that. Uh, Because not everybody would do that. They'd be tearful afterwards, or you've seen it a million times, uh, you know, with the crying. And I couldn't hear my earpiece. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, early in 2017, I was sent the video of, of Mariah Carey, you know, sort of stumbling through her performance over and over again. So somebody who stops the show in order to fix a performance, cares deeply. The other thing we've been talking about, though, that's been really fascinating all week is who dares to stop that performance? Who is self-confident enough and secure enough in their position to stop the whole thing and say, no, 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 we're going to do it again my way? Uh, We, you know, the idea of somebody being Secure enough to be a pain in the ass is something that we were enjoying discussing earlier this week. It's hard to be a pain in the ass. Like in my day-to-day work, I work on a television show. It is hard to be like, okay, I'm sorry. You know, I just really don't like it this way. Can we change the script? Can we adjust this? It is hard. It is so much easier to be like, okay, uh, yeah, we'll just go with it. And, um, And then in that moment feel like you are carrying this one thing where you know it could have been better, or at least for you it was better. Right. You maybe sold yourself out if you do it the way that it would be fine. But most of it comes from you don't want those people to think, oh, Lainey is so high maintenance. Oh, God, Lainey, like, has one thing after another that she wants. So you fucking turn yourself into a martyr. Martyrs have no fun. (laughs) Well, I think it's interesting, though, because nobody's going to say that if it makes it better. Nobody's going to complain that Adele stopped the show if it makes it better. And she made it better, right? She not only made it better by doing a better performance and a better tribute for George Michael, uh, she... That moment is ratings. That moment keeps the Grammys on everybody else's lips. But when you trickle it down to other people and real people like us, and we didn't end up making it better, 
then are we just a pain in the ass? Well, who says you didn't end up making it better? I think it's about having the confidence to know. Choosing your battles is another way of thinking about it. But knowing for certain, saying this, complaining about this, stopping this meeting or whatever it is to discuss this thing is going to make it not just different, but better. Or I'm entitled to express this opinion that nobody else is talking about, even though it's going to derail things a little bit because it will make things better. Is it hard? It's so hard. It is so hard. It's harder for women. It is much harder for women. It is harder to be the person in the room who speaks up and says, I don't think this is working the way everybody thinks it is. Yeah, maybe because you're a woman, because you see things from a woman's perspective, that can be really difficult, especially if you feel like that can be, depending on who you are, that can be your job in that room to point out things that don't ring true to women. It can also be a job that you're not supposed to actually fulfill. Uh, it can be a lot harder for women. So I can see complicated uh so I can see complicated feelings when you look at Adele doing something like that so effortlessly because on the one hand, it's amazing. On the other hand, it's not that, it's not that easy for everybody. It's not that achievable for everybody. It's a, that's a big lofty goal to be able to stop the show. Now, would you argue on the flip side or would some people say on the flip side that, okay, well, we've already spent like 15 minutes establishing that Adele is a big fucking deal. So of course she can be a pain in the ass because nobody's going to say no to her. But where does the person who isn't at the top of the mountain fit there? You know, not only does she feel uncomfortable in herself speaking up, but the consequences are that much greater. Yeah. And so this is where we talk about what you can afford to do, right? First of all, different people have different philosophies. Uh, we have studiously avoided saying uh, Beyonce thus far in the podcast yet because <laughs> It, you know, we usually can get to a 15-minute mark, but she is a different person, right? She would be rehearsed to the T beforehand so that that wouldn't happen. But one of the things that I always think about is a few weeks ago, Roxanne Gay pulled the publication of uh, a book that she had under a Simon & Schuster uh, label because she was protesting the uh, publication of Milo Yiannopoulos' book. And she said in her statement, I can afford to do this. And she meant that both in the financial and in the notoriety senses. Roxanne Gay will be just fine without the publication of that book. But she stressed, you only do what you can afford to do. So this is what becomes the work technique for you, for me, for women who are in situations where they don't have all that capital that Adele has, is what can you afford to do what can you comfortably or a little bit uncomfortably achieve when you push back and say, I'm sorry to be a pain or derail us or stop this train, but I think we need to address this. Uh, Picking your battles or choosing where to spend your capital is a really interesting conversation for women in all levels of their career. Uh, I think sometimes often young women see things happening and go, but I'm the such and such assistant. I can't speak up at all. And it's a constant question, isn't it? Can you or can you not? Is that welcomed or is it not? And I think it varies a lot from workplace to workplace as well. Well, it also reminds me of Sarah's article a few months ago on Kathleen Kennedy, who of course 
is the big producer, the big executive over at Disney and who's overseeing the Star Wars movies. And she made that comment about, I, you know, haven't hired any female directors for the Star Wars franchise because whatever X, Y, Z excuse. Like, I'm just telling you, it's an excuse. You can look it up, but it was an excuse. And Sarah wrote a piece on Lainey Gossip criticizing that, being like, hey, Kathleen Kennedy, um, if no one has the capital, to borrow your word, Duanna, if no one else has the capital, I'm pretty sure you have the fucking capital to make this change, to get female directors into these positions, and you're not doing it. And of course, there's all kinds of language that says, you know, oh, well, we just hired the best person for the job. We hired the people with the most experience. We hired the people who were most suited to direct this or that project. And so that's almost an unassailable comment, except that uh, it actually was proven this week. Uh, IndieWire has an article proving that uh, the EEOC, uh, and I'll get back to that acronym in one second, has determined that, in fact, there has been systemic discrimination against female directors in Hollywood, which is... I mean, that's a big, big statement there on its own. So the EEOC is the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. And according to IndieWire, it completed its investigation into charges that the Hollywood studio system engages in systemic discrimination against female filmmakers. And the results are explosive. Quote, the EEOC is currently in settlement talks with the major studios to resolve charges that they systemically discriminated against women directors. So systemically means that it was institutional and intentional. That's right. And that there's proof of that. And I just want to be clear to uh, listeners who are not American. Uh, I read a fantastic blog about work called Ask a Manager. And that's where I learned that EEOC, that's a kind of a dirty word in workplaces, which is to say, if you're accusing somebody of uh, violating the EEOC or needing something to be investigated by that, that is, it's not quite a human rights violation, but uh, violating an equal rights violation is a big, big deal. The fact that they found systematic discrimination is, that's huge. It is a big, big deal. Uh, and so, you know, there's another comment here and says charges are only made public when the EEOC files a lawsuit, which is, tip, quote, typically a last resort. Right. So we've heard it said a million times, female directors aren't getting the same chances. They're not getting the same shots. But now we have a commission that has actual evidence. They conducted a two-year, what is a two-year investigation um, it says here that they began interviewing a wide variety of female film and television directors about their experience, and they have found after these investigations, after these interviews, after gathering all this evidence, that they can prove that all major studios, without exception, all of them put in place a system that blocked out female directors. That's essentially what it is. Sure. And so let's just explain how this might work. Uh, the biggest sort of example has been a director who was hired straight out of Sundance a few years back uh, and, and 
This is where you look to your co-host who remembers the name that you keep forgetting. Colin Trevorrow. Thank you. Came from... Colin Trevorrow uh, from Sundance? Yeah. What was the... His trajectory was from his film at Sundance. His film at Sundance. And then he went on to the Jurassic movie. Right. Uh, as opposed to female directors who also have movies at Sundance and don't go on there. Like, that's a big leap. And, you know, the charge will be made, oh, they're not, they don't direct that kind of picture or, you know, we'll give them something that is more to their taste, is softer, is this, is that, is whatever. But this lends itself partly to the conversation we've been having for a couple of weeks. We don't make rom-coms, for example, anymore. Films where women might have been given a chance earlier to direct a more modestly budgeted picture doesn't happen anymore. In television, depending on the number of episodes you have, there can be 10 or 12 or 20 directing slots. But of course, if they say, well, you know, we need somebody who's directed a a $2 million hour in the last year or with this studio before, and if those women aren't there because they haven't been given the chance or if the one woman the studio thinks is acceptable is working on another show, then, oh, well, you know, they just weren't available. The women weren't there. They weren't available. There are, of course, hundreds of aspiring female directors hoping to get the chance. But if they don't get the stepping stone job, the shadowing job that leads to the lesser directing job that gets them into position for that job, then no, there aren't. I'm using heavy air quotes here. There aren't women who are available to take those directing jobs. But in fact, this is where we come back to the systematic discrimination. They were not put in the positions to be there. Well, I mean, to go back to Kathleen Kennedy, who, um, let me just correct, not head of Disney, but is the head of Lucasfilm. Mm -hmm. And of course, Lucasfilm is the Star Wars films. She, um, you know, her comment was, we want to make sure that when we bring a female director in to do Star Wars, they're set up for success. These are gigantic films and you can't come into them with essentially no experience. So what she's asking for is experience. And yet, as to your point just now, you know, the hoops to go through to get the experience and then to compare it to, hey, but how come the other guy had no experience, not that much? Uh, Colin Trevorrow directed one film. It was an indie film before he got Jurassic, which... I don't have to tell you what the budget on Jurassic is. Um, It just doesn't hold up, that argument, that rationale. And she's a woman, Kathleen Kennedy. Now, one of the things that is interesting about this is, first of all, this is not a surprise to anybody who's working in entertainment in any way, shape, or form. It's just that now there is proof. And you asked very accurately, what are those reparations going to look like? What is the financial lawsuit going to add up to? Uh, And if it adds up to programs for, you know, more female directors or more uh, quotas or things like that, what's that going to look like? And is it going to be ghettoized in some way? Uh, It's still a huge step in the right direction because, of course, if you say it, then we you can't ignore it anymore. We know it to be a true thing. So what makes this exciting is not that it's new news, because everybody working in entertainment, I would say women and men, knows this to have been the case. What's exciting about it now is that it is undeniable. And 
when something's undeniable, then people can make real steps to change it. Uh, not unlike the increased diversity that we get to see when people start calling out the fact that there's little to no diversity in films, in Oscar films, in television, then we start to see a reaction. Is it a reaction because of an outcry? Yeah, sure. But guess what? That means that outcry works. So this is only good news. It is only good news. I do want to take a moment to mourn, though, the consequences of what has happened because of this systemic discrimination. I mean, of course, capable, amazing artists have not had their moments, have not been able to strike while the iron is hot, have not been able to give us that work. And there was a ripple effect. You mentioned rom-coms, why they cease to be a thing anymore, why the genre is quote-unquote dying, has been resurrected in some way in a different form, arguably better on television, but we are missing sort of rom-coms at the movies. And that is a direct consequence of this systemic discrimination. The person that comes to mind is Amy Heckerling. Mm, Amy mm -hmm. Heckerling, there was a great article this week, a profile on Amy Heckerling in The Ringer. And just to remind you all, because you might not recognize the name Amy Heckerling, but you will know her movies, everybody listening. Uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Clueless. Clueless is the one I think that most of us are going to hang on to here. Um, look Who's Talking. These are huge movies, both in the pop culture landscape and for box office. She actually directed and wrote Clueless and directed and wrote Look Who's Talking. And then after, she directed a bomb, maybe two, and was put into director jail for a long, long time. You could argue that she may still be in director jail because she directs smaller things now, but things that she's still passionate about. She directs shows for Amazon. She's doing a few shows. Um, it's work that means something to her. But in terms of major studio, box office, blockbuster, big stories, rom-coms, all that, it was gone. She's in her 60s now. So when we talk about the gap in the rom-com, um, when we talk about the content we have been missing now. And let's not dismiss movies like Clueless and Look Who's Talking as just light, fluffy shit. I mean, what was Clueless but uh, a film about a girl who had to figure out that she was wrong, right? She was wrong about almost everything. And sure. she had to figure it out. Look Who's Talking featured a woman, a single woman having a baby who was more successful than the taxi driver... He was a taxi driver, right? John Travolta and Look Who's Talking? Oh, man. I mean, we're getting yeah. into a real Anyway, sleepover. I'm going to say he was a taxi driver. But, you know, a less successful man who essentially occupied the childcare duties for her while she went to work at her important job. I mean, Amy Heckerling gave us some really great shit and kind of got caught up and kind of got punished by a system that certainly favors men over women. You know, I want to talk about when you said, oh, made a flop. There was a great article in The Hollywood Reporter by a really respected female producer, Linda Obst, who uh, wrote a book that I just adored and devoured, Hello, He Lied, uh, and another more recent book. Uh, but she talks about how, you know, if men direct a flop, or even two, they can come back from that. If women direct a flop, they're done for, that it's it's punishment. And the biggest evidence of that is, I think, of a director, uh, Paul Verhoeven, uh, 
you can correct my pronunciation before I go further if you want to. Uh, Paul Verhoeven directed Elle, which of course uh, has given Isabelle Huppert her nomination for Best Actress at the upcoming Oscars. Uh, before that, you know what he directed? Showgirls. Show <laughs> he directed Showgirls. And somehow people were like, no, yeah, this guy can direct another art film. Yeah, no, an acclaimed art film. Absolutely. Why not? Can you see that happening if it were anybody else? Can you see that happening to Ava DuVernay or to Amy Heckerling or to, you know, God, we should have more names at the ready uh, to pull out in terms of female directors. No, you can't. There's no, you know, if this had happened to Nora Ephron, she would not have come back from that. It would be a footnote forever. But people have almost forgotten this about Paul Verhoeven. And well, Nora, it did happen to her and she had to write her way out of it. That's the thing. Um, And it, it it is to your point. Nora had to write her way out of her flops. Out of what flop though? Like I don't think in the body of work that there are flops that are as huge and memorable as Showgirls. Showgirls is a pop culture punchline for all time. And, you know, I'm sure there are movies of hers that did poorly, even did dismally, but they have not stayed in the consciousness as an earnest filmmaking Travesty. I'm sorry, Mr. Verhoeven. I, I think L is a very good movie, sir. Uh, <laughs> so it's a really, really interesting, interesting place to be in. But you're right. There are there are careers that we'll never have recovered. Well, I mean, that's what Linda says in in her piece for the Hollywood Reporter. Um, and yes, she cites here Nora. What Nora had to do to come back after Mixed Nuts bombed in 1994 was crazy. She had to keep writing and rewriting to get another green light. If you can't write, you're really dead. Sure. And that's great. And there's a whole other discussion there to be had about writing. Well, it means that women have to then lean into another skill. You know what I mean? Like Paul Verhoeven, the Paul Verhoevens of the world can just keep keep directing, but the women have to be resourceful. What else can I do? Oh, I can write too. Let me go there, develop that skill to get back to the directing. Well, see what I mean? Yeah, but Nora Ephron was a writer for many, many years. I think my point is mixed nuts is not the same as showgirls on, on, you know, on the level of flop that we're talking about here and uh, on the level of punchline that it continues to be. So this is good news. We have to keep track of it. You have to keep going to films that are written and directed by women. Show people there there is box office validity to them uh, because in the end, money talks and we can prove that these are the films and television projects that we want to see. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. It almost sucks, though. Like, I mean, I really love the tone of this Linda Opes piece because she was a little tongue-in-cheek about it because she was like, this is a great time to be a woman in, in show business, as you were saying. Um, but it was a little cheeky because she was like, 
Um, it is a great time, and women have to be at their best. They have to basically work at 150 while everybody else gets to work at maybe 95, and only then will, you know, they be able to make a difference. It goes back to that whole thing. I mean, it's, you know, in the same way as like, you know, we talk about the Vogue cover um, and the racial disparity in what you have to be as a black woman to make a Vogue cover. You basically have to be Michelle Obama, so essentially the first lady of the United States, or Oprah Winfrey, a billionaire, or Beyonce, or Rihanna, to get a cover of Vogue if you're black. If you're white, you can be Jessica Biel. (laughs) (laughs) Or Sienna Miller. Right. And, you know, and of course, with the mid-budget movies being squeezed out, all these opportunities, Linda Obst also fully acknowledges that the path she took to success is kind of eradicated now. It kind of doesn't exist. Uh, It's a great article in The Hollywood Reporter. She also, her more recent book is Sleepless in Hollywood. I really like Hello, He Lied as well. Uh, They are exactly the right kind of tongue-in-cheek of knowing what you're going through as a woman in any kind of work. Uh, So it's very exciting. Well, I mean, the theme of our show today is about you know, capital. When you have it, what you do with it. When you don't have it, what the consequences are. Um, And now we come to Donald Glover, who over the last year certainly has accumulated his share of capital. And what is he doing with it? Well, let's start with how. Uh, Atlanta. Yeah. I mean, like, let's really start with how. Donald Glover has had this most interesting career, right? He was a writer on 30 Rock before being cast as Troy Barnes in Community. Community was not for everybody, but it meant he got to try out a lot of really odd, weird things, comedy-wise. Uh, he had a weird YouTube channel. He had has had kind of a weird recording career as Childish Gambino. Uh, not super mainstream, not, uh, you know, necessarily in line with his comedy aspirations. And then, of course, he uh, wrote, starred in, created Atlanta which was on FX and which won everything. Yeah. Shocked everybody (laughs) winning all those golden globes at the beginning of the year. Not that shocking actually, because if you watch it, the show is great. It's It's so good. It's entertaining and it's funny, but it's also kind of touching and gives you anxiety in the best way. I now realize I just want anxiety in my television. Um, You know, I want to not know how I'm going to feel from week to week Uh, and kind of, created himself as both a leading man and a creator, right? Like that that role is one that he created for himself, arguably out of nowhere. And then it's, you know, what what is that expression, Duanna, when there's so many blessings, uh, um, an abundance of like, you know, my cup runneth over? Sure, yeah. Um, and so for Donald Glover now… He is Lando Calrissian, so he's going to be doing the Star Wars uh, young Han Solo movie, um, which is going to delay Atlanta. Uh-huh. And he was recently announced it as… Friday night it was announced. Friday night it was announced as the voice of Simba. I believe he, that there's actually a live action Lion King. Yes. Uh, and Donald Glover is going to be playing Simba yes. in The Lion King. Which is amazing. James Earl Jones is going to reprise the role of Mufasa as he did. So are these like we wait a minute? Confused. Like these are like <laughs> people animals, or uh, is it like Jungle Book? 
Well, let's just take a minute here. What is here. this live action? I, I, yeah, I'm really confused by a live action Lion King. I mean, you know, it, it was a huge Broadway musical, but let's just let's just take a minute here to to Google what we're up to here. Well, yeah, the live action Jungle Book was like still animals, <laughs> <laughs> right? It's just I don't know. It's just not cartoony. Are you? Like, I'm are just you- really confused because <laughs> when I think live action, I think human beings. Are you worried that there are going to be people in lion suits? <laughs> like on Broadway? <laughs> yes. Anyway, so fine. He's Simba, but essentially his voice is Simba. Well, okay, let's 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 right? leave the interpretation of live action to be interpreted. But Donald Glover is playing Simba. Yes, James Earl Jones is reprising the role of Mufasa, which he first created in the animated <laughs> version of The Lion King. Uh some 24 years ago. Good God. Uh, I do think that's a that's a point, though. This is a real nostalgia piece for a lot of people. A lot of people who would be the audience for Atlanta are also the audience for uh, Lando Calrissian, are also the audience for the resurrection of the Lion King. Uh, so it's hitting everybody right where they live. And by everybody, I mean me. I'm here for all of these. But will one delay the other? Yeah. Does Donald Glover now have to choose what work he does? Well, yeah. And, you know, what he's choosing is Lando Calrissian, big, big Star Wars. Uh, Looks, a live action Lion King is not going to be small. You know, I'm sensing a little skepticism from you here. I'm not sure if I like the tone that you're taking. I just, I, you know, it's, I'm just so literal sometimes. So when you say live, like I think live action Beauty and the Beast, okay, then a real person is playing Belle, right? Okay. So you're telling me live action Lion King. I'm just trying to imagine like, you know, how that is the same. And what would be the problem? Do I need to break into song here? (laughs) Do you need me? No, I love the, who doesn't love the Lion King? I just, all I picture is, all I picture is James Earl Jones walking around in like a lion suit. And now I'm like, okay, I can't. <laughs> I need to, yeah, I'm sorry. I need to mature. Clearly. But it's going to be great. It is going to be great on so many levels. No, in all seri- seriousness, it's going to be great. You know why it's going to be great? I do think that there is a very focused, deliberate selection process here for Donald Glover. He made Atlanta, which is essentially a celebration of the blackness of Atlanta. He is now stepping into a very iconic role a black man in the Star Wars universe, a sexy, cool, awesome black man. And now they are essentially making a live action Lion King, which centers on a black man's message towards raising his black son. And what happens when his son, his young black son, has to assume the legacy. To me, I feel like that is some insight into the um, intention of Donald Glover, how he intends for his career to match his social and political and cultural sensibilities. It's a beautiful thing. I really, I really appreciate that. I also think that there's a lot to be said for 
you know, there are more and more writer, director, actors than ever before. And there's something to be said for establishing yourself as an actor earlier on so that later when you no longer want to be that focus that you have the capital, there it is again, to be a a director, to be a writer, to get those projects greenlit, right? There is, some of these projects are going to pay a lot of money. A lot of them are going to establish Donald Glover to new audiences who don't know him. They are all increasing his uh, knowability, uh, his Q factor, so that he is more and more known and more and more recognizable to people when it is time to get projects greenlit that might otherwise be a tougher sell. So it's a really interesting tack to take in that way as well. I I think this is fascinating when we think about people who really have all the choices in the world. You know, at a certain point, people are really struggling for roles, for jobs, for whatever. And then when you have everything in front of you, what are the choices you make? So I think that's a really interesting way to look not only at the choices he's making now, but how they set him up for the next 5, 10, 15 years down the road. Well, I mean, when you talk about capital and what he's accumulating, um, you know, the word we haven't mentioned yet related to capital um, is power. Mm -hmm. So you accumulate the capital, you lean into the acting now, having already established yourself as a writer, director, creator. And then once that capital puts you into a certain position, you now have the power. You have the power as a decision maker now to generate opportunity and capital for others. That's right. And you have goodwill behind you, which it cannot be overstated. You know, there are lots of people who are qualified to be directors, for example, but being George Clooney, who is beloved by all, for example, doesn't hurt either. Right. And so, speaking of capital and power, we come back to the Oscars. It is Oscar week. Um, Everybody's strutting around, peacocking around Hollywood. Let me ask you the question that you wind up asking people in your day job. What are you most excited about, Elaine? (laughs) I'll tell you what I'm most not excited about. Can we start there? Uh, Sure. Well, I will speak for both of us on this. What neither one? Yes. I will will friend-splain to you. What we are both least excited about is the prospect of a certain Justin Timberlake winning the Oscar. (laughs) For best song. I don't think you're going to argue with me. That night is going to be really difficult for both of us. The only thing I will clarify is that not excited uh, implies like a lack of energy or enthusiasm. (laughs) And if he wins, I will have all the energy to be enraged that I need. I will, uh, we should. Enraged, right? Oh, I mean, and disgusted, I'd say. Uh, And this is, we should clarify. Uh, We watch the Oscars, we come back together. Here's one of the amazing sort of open secrets about the Oscars. When you're in California where they're held, in theory, the broadcast is over at 8.30. Uh, In theory, we should be able to be well on our way to starting our writing and putting everything together for the next day by 9 o'clock, 9.30. It never happens. No. We're never ready to actually start typing before 11.30 Pacific by the time we get organized. But part of it is because we need to rant and rage about all the things that have happened during the show. And 
a possible Justin Timberlake win, not only... <laughs> Can I just tell people your body language right now? <laughs> you have basically... Okay, Duanna's arms right now are folded behind her back as if she's being handcuffed. Like she, so picture Duanna, she just got arrested. As this is how, this is her body, this is how her body is positioned, even as she considers the possibility of Justin Timberlake winning an Oscar. It's telling. Because, of course, point the first, he will be insufferable, <laughs> more insufferable. Point the second, it will mean that Lin-Manuel Miranda will not have won. It will mean that Justin Timberlake has an Oscar and Lynn does not. Yeah. I mean, I can, if, you know, City of Stars is going to win from La La Land, which is the presumed, Boy, no, which is the presumed favorite, but is Jesus it? Christ, JT's making a fucking charge. Like he is fucking making a charge. Anyway, we'll get to that in a minute. But yes, the presumed winner, like the front runner, by a slim margin over JT is City of Stars. No, here's the thing. I take issue with, uh, basically, I think that uh, everything Sarah writes on Laney Gossip is incisive and brilliant, and I kind of wish I'd written most of it myself. But she said that the audition song was going to become like an iconic song for people to sing. No. City of Stars? No. There is nothing, none of the songs in La La Land are heartwarmingly memorable. And I actually think that is to their credit. They're not standalone songs. They're not radio songs, but that's kind of the point. I do not wish that City of Stars wins that that best song Oscar. Okay, with shit diarrhea, like I'd rather Whoa. it win, I'd rather it win than him, well, than Justin Timberlake. But- that's what's so interesting. You just said it and then him because you can't divorce him <laughs> from the song. That song sucks. Like, can't stop. What is it called? I, it can't stop feeling. Can't stop the feeling. I can't stop the feeling yes. is terrible. He is terrible. Um, just saying in a, in a I would rather situation, would you rather situation? Because I'm, I'm sorry, Duanna, but... The Moana song has not built up any traction. Nope, I, I hear it that. It is not going to win. No. So it is between City of Stars and that feeling. Well, but you have to remember, too, that Lin-Manuel Miranda does have capital, has built up capital. There are people who will vote for it because of who he is. However, the issue here is that if Can't Stop the Feeling wins, you have to watch Justin Timberlake's speech. Would you? Tr- would you please try to, uh, I'd like you to try and improvise how the acceptance speech will go. I, 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 <laughs> me, I, me, me, I, great, amazing, me, <laughs> I, thank you, me, I, goodbye. Yeah, I think, I think you need to like do a, a kiss to your fingers and hold right. them in the air or something. Yeah, but, something like that. Yeah. Yeah, but mostly, I think I got it. That's pretty, fairly accurate. Yeah. One of the reasons that we know that is because you sent me uh, possibly the most boring article I've ever read that was also entertaining. Uh, the Muse, Jezebel, did an article where they compiled all of Justin Timberlake's comments on the, uh, on the song that since he's been promoting it all year, I guess. And God, they all blend together. And 
God, they all sound exactly the same and have absolutely no content. Could you… The title of the article at The Muse, at Jezebel, is, What is there possibly to learn? Let me rephrase. Let me start. Restart. The title of the article at The Muse, at Jezebel, is, What is there to possibly learn about Justin Timberlake's troll song? And (laughs) And then quote after quote after quote, over essentially seven months of him saying the same thing. How he feels about the song, why he wrote the song, his son, why he wrote the song, his son, why he wrote the song, his son, blah, blah, blah. Now, here's the thing, Duanna, are we hypocrites? Because this guy is hustling. Uh-huh. Yep, for sure. And we have a podcast about work. Yes. And we have never wanted to shit on anyone's hustle. Better to try than not try at all. Oh, for sure. So, are we being unfair to him? Well, look, here's the thing. He wants it. Yeah. And he's going to get it. But here's the thing. Let's accept that everybody that we talk about on this podcast is hustling in some form or another, right? They're all working for it. They all want it. Yes? Let's further accept that everybody that we're talking about is extraordinary in some way. It takes a lot to get to be Adele or Beyonce or Donald Glover or any of the above. You really have to work to get there. So at this point, you have to be at a really, an extremely high level of your game. Yes? Yeah. Whomever, to use a sports metaphor that I'm not qualified to make, whoever is, you know, seated against Serena Williams in the sort of early stages of any given open is still an extraordinary tennis player, right? Yes? Yes. Yes. So to get to this point, yes, Justin Timberlake works hard. Yes, he's extremely talented. But we're pointing out a level where he is not bringing his A game to make these interview clips interesting, exciting, charming in the same way that maybe some of his competitors are. If this article was a compilation of all the things that Lynn had said about writing Moana, we would be cooing and making them into memes and giggling. This is a level that either he's neglected or hasn't gotten to yet, but there's no narrative, there's no story around this song that we can really hang on to. And that's where he's falling down. That's where, even though he's doing the work, Uh, it's not the level of charm that we tend to need at the Oscars. Well, here, let me read you a quote. Uh Um, The song's got such an unabashed energy to it, and I remember playing it for my friends, and everybody was like, put this out now. (laughs) I love… What could be wrong with that? So basically, what he, and he, this is what he said to Deadline. That was December 2016. So basically, Justin Timberlake was like, I wrote this song. It was so amazing. I played it for my friends. And they were like, oh, my God, it's such a smash hit. You have to release it. That is what he's coming here with. Right. Um, I, come on now. There's no… To compare it, uh, you know, there's a story that, that Lin-Manuel Miranda tells all the time about getting the idea for some song or other on the way to his friend's birthday party. Have you heard this anecdote? He says he got the idea as he was walking to the subway. He wrote the whole thing on the subway while he got out there, said, hey, friend, happy birthday, but I got to have one beer and leave because I'm writing this song. He had one beer and turned around and left and wrote most of the song going back on the subway back home and finished the song. That's an anecdote. That is a story. 
and it even involves the friend. But it's not, oh my God, all my friends thought I was amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, listen, I just wanted to explore whether or not at some point we just have these hate blinders on. I will never take them off if they are hate blinders. Um, But when we talk about capital and Justin Justin Timberlake's capital and how um, there are some artists who use their capital slash power and pay it forward and share, as we talked about in the Donald Glover discussion, does Justin Timberlake do that? Well, you know, our friend Lorella sent another article about Justin Timberlake uh, discussing uh, that he has, cannot remember a time when he wasn't famous. And that's another discussion for another time. But at a certain point, maybe you run out of charming anecdotes about you riding the subway. Uh, that may be a problem in and of itself to be discussed at another time. Well, to be discussed at another time, but I just have to get this in there. Never forget what he did to Janet Jackson. We talk about fucking capital and fucking power. Well, yeah, let, but absolutely. Let's talk about it. It's There was an unfortunate moment at which Super Bowl now? Is it 2000, what year? Three? Um, what was it? Nipplegate? Yeah. So 2004? I love that you said that. Like, that's how you're going to Google it. It was Nipplegate, so it must have been after the blackout. So. <laughs> um, it was 2004. Right. So that was 13 years ago. He's been working steadily ever since. Arguably will win an Oscar uh, from... You can't even get it out. Oh, poor us. Oh, God. And Janet Jackson's career has never recovered. Never. Ever. And he has, in in that interview where he says that he can't remember not being famous, he also declines to comment on it. Still, still 13 years later, when he could say, God, didn't I hang her out to dry? Or, God, wasn't that awful the way that I got off scot-free and she escaped? Nothing could touch Justin Timberlake now. Still 13 years later, he declines to comment. He doesn't say, wow, that was fucked up. I wish that hadn't happened. That's the kind of person you're talking about. Yeah. Fuck him so hard. And fuck us. Think of us. If he wins on Sunday at the Oscars, it is going to be, I mean, I wonder, our blog, our blog posts are going to be dark. <laughs> But not our podcast, because we will not be able to podcast. Our podcast will be dark. Oh, literally dark. Oh, that literally was Literally nice. dark. <laughs> Look at you throwing in theater terms. I was, I was so taken aback after I used a sports metaphor poorly this week. Show Your Work will be dark next week, because Duane and I will be in LA for the Oscars. Um, and unfortunately, we haven't figured out how to bring all the equipment and Yasik to, um, to LA with us. So... We apologize for the inconvenience, but we will be working. And you know where to find us. And we will be showing our work. We hope you continue to show your work and continue to show your support for Show Your Work. Thank you so much. Love it. Email us. Tell us how you spend your capital. Tell us what will make you cringe uh, handcuffed at the Oscars. And uh, follow us on Twitter. Uh, Check us out on iTunes and Google Play. And we will see you in two weeks. Bye. Show your work.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.